Hey, thanks for joining us here at the Vineyard Church Podcast. For more video messages and content, make sure to visit our website, vineyardwheeling.com, or download our app. There's a lot of great resources there that are free and will help you grow closer to God and help you connect with the church. Right now, let's go to our Connections Director, Jen Lewis, for this week's message. So, hello. We get to look at the Eighth Commandment today. Do not steal. You know, at first glance, it seems that I've been assigned two very clear commandments uh, in the scriptures that I, out of the list of all of them, got the most straightforward and the easiest. I was assigned do not murder and do not steal. And while those may seem clear and straightforward, and they are, the more we study scripture, we realize that not only is God concerned about us not doing those things, but he's concerned with the motivation behind those behaviors. That when we talk about murder and when we talk about stealing, we're talking about what is happening in our hearts behind those behaviors. Last, I don't know, maybe three weeks ago, we talked about do not murder. And we talked about the things that lead up to murder. Unmet expectations, bitterness, anger, unforgiveness. And Jesus taught that God wants more than just us not to kill someone. God wants us to rid ourselves of the things that motivate us to kill. Well, the eighth commandment, do not steal, reveals in us some underlying underlying motivations that we need to deal with as well. This commandment makes us aware of the issues of greed in our lives and the lack of trust we may have in God. You see, most often when people steal, they steal because either they don't trust God that he will provide for them, or they want more than what God is providing. Even before God gave this commandment to Moses, he tangibly taught the Israelites about trusting him and not being greedy. In Exodus 16, after the Israelites were enslaved for 400 years, God delivered them. And on their journey to the land of plenty, they spent 40 years in the desert. In order to provide for them, God miraculously sent them quail for meat to eat. And he also sent like a bread-like substance called manna, which showed up on the ground like frost in the morning. And for five days of the week, God told the people, go out and collect enough manna and quail for your families for that day. What's interesting is if they collected more than their share for that day, you know, kind of to like save the leftovers for the next day, in the morning it would be rotten and bad. And what's so fascinating about this story though is that on the sixth day, God told them collect enough for two days because he wanted them to be able to observe the Sabbath and rest on the seventh day. What's fascinating is that the extra that they had collected on the sixth day would miraculously be fine on the seventh day. It wouldn't spoil. God was teaching them his provision. He was building in them an understanding that he would provide for them and that they could trust him. This commandment, this eighth commandment about stealing reminded them and reminds us today that the God of the universe is capable of providing for us and sustaining us. We can trust him. When we read about uh, this commandment in Exodus 2015, we we think about um, in our minds, we've got this covered, you know, because we're picturing like thieves with with masks on, carrying knapsacks over their shoulders, sneaking into a house, or or we picture someone shoplifting or robbing a bank. 
And while these are obviously stealing, there are so many more, less obvious ways that we can be tempted to steal every day in our lives. Think about it. Have you ever bought something, um, maybe on uh, a business account that you plan to use for personal use? Or what about borrowing something and never giving it back? You know, recently, many of us have had to work from home. Are we really working the agreed upon hours? Have you ever asked to be paid in cash so that you don't have to pay you know, taxes to the government? Or have you ever been given too much change back at the store and you kept it? How about have you ever accidentally left some, you know, kind of left something in your shopping cart, not realizing it until you're loading up the car and then uh, you just don't go back in to pay for it because it's too much of a pain? How about borrowing on a credit card, knowing full well that you do not have the money nor the ability to get the money to pay off the debt? What about intellectual property? You know, someone thinks of a good idea at work and they share it with you, but then you go and take that good idea to the people above you and you present it as if it's yours. These behaviors are so commonplace that we excuse them as no big deal. We can kind of tell ourselves it isn't hurting anyone. Like we think specifically of the company as this, earth, this, this entity that has no feelings and has, has more than their fair share anywhere. So anyway, so who cares if I take these post-it notes home, for example, or who cares if I look at Facebook for 10 minutes each hour while I'm on the clock? It's not a big deal. You know, Brian told me about March Madness and that the online CBS coverage has a button you can click so that while you're watching online, if somebody from work comes by your office, you can quickly click the button and it changes the screen to what looks like a blank email page. So you can hide the fact that you're stealing work time from your company. Here's the deal. We like stuff and we want more stuff. And we often want to get the stuff in the easiest way possible. While we may believe that God will provide what we need, we aren't always sure he will provide what we want. And that is where greed comes in. Often it's not that we don't trust God to provide, it's that we want him to provide more than he is. Now, I wanna make sure it's clear, wanting things and being blessed by God with many things is not inherently bad, but compromising our faith in order to get more is sin. In those moments, when we compromise our faith, when we steal, we reveal that our desire for stuff is more than our desire for God. And let's face it, God owns it all. He has entrusted material possessions to each of us. When we steal, we are taking what he has entrusted to one person and deciding that God should have entrusted it to us instead. We're telling God we know better. We sin both against the person we're stealing from and we sin against God. My husband says every sin has both a horizontal and a vertical element to it. And he's right, because when we sin against our brother and sister, we also sin against God. Stealing is a bold statement to God that either we don't trust him or we want stuff more than we want a good relationship with him. Now, what's beautiful about the Bible is the cohesive partnership between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And we have seen over and over again in this series how Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. We see Christian teaching not doing away with all of the Ten Commandments, but actually expanding on them and further explaining them. 
In Ephesians 4, the Apostle Paul covers this issue of stealing. Now, I'm going to read a little bit before the part where he talks about stealing, because I want you to get the context in which he is speaking. He is writing to the church in Ephesus, which was uh, a very corrupt society, very similar to our world right now. So keep in mind, as he's writing to these Christians, he's writing them to a time and place that could be very similar to ours. He says this to them. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, let me stop here for a minute. Whenever you see in scripture the phrases put off or put on, it is insinuating that what we are to put on and what we are to put off is we put off our sinful nature and we put on what is not natural for us in the state that we're born in. Naturally, born as sinful creatures, we must put off the instinctive kind of sinful patterns that we were born with. And then we choose to actively put on the attitude and perspective that God designed for us to have before the fall. Greed and the lack of trust in God are part of our old ways. And so we are to take those off and we are to put on the ways of God. But you see, these instincts are not new to us. They're not unique to our time and place. We see this all the way at the very beginning of scripture when Adam and Eve wanted the fruit that was off limits. They wanted more than what God was providing. They had all the fruits of a perfect paradise to choose from. But they longed for the one fruit that was not provided for them. They, they didn't trust God that he had their best in mind. You know, we see the same kind of sinful inclination displayed in a, in a different way in the Israelites as they were leaving Egypt. We read in Exodus 12 that after the 10 miserable plagues, the Israelites asked the Egyptians right before they left if they could have clothing, gold, and silver. And it says that God moved in the hearts of the Egyptians so they were willing to give them whatever they asked for. So in essence, God plundered the Egyptians and provided for the Israelites who had been enslaved for 400 years and didn't have much. But what the Israelites were waiting while, but while the Israelites were waiting for Moses to come down the mountain with the 10 commandments, they got restless. They took the gold, they took the silver, and they fashioned them into an idol to worship. So the very things that God had given them for provision, they elevated beyond its proper place. That provision, that blessing, that miraculous provision, that material stuff became their idol. They stopped trusting God that Moses was coming and they placed their possessions before their relationship with God. And in a twisted way, this still happens to us today. Greed and lack of trust in God pushes us and tempts us to steal. So knowing all of this, Paul is saying we've got to put off our natural inclination of sin and put on godly ways. So he goes on in the scripture and he talks about, you know, don't lie, don't hold grudges. And then he brings up stealing in verse 28. He says, he who has been stealing must steal no longer, but 
but must work doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Now, what I wanna do is kind of break this down so that we can dissect it and kind of apply it to our lives. First, we need to stop stealing. We just need to quit doing it. Some of you may have felt a bit uncomfortable when I was sharing some of those examples earlier, but this scripture is telling you, if you are feeling uncomfortable, stop making excuses and cut it out. Just stop it. It's really pretty clear, so I'm not gonna spend much time here. We need to stop it if we're stealing. But secondly, it says, start working. Now, many of us think of working as something we have to do, but don't really, you know, we don't really want to do or even like doing. Some of us may even view work as part of the curse, you know, part of the result of living in a broken and fallen world. But it's important for us to remember that work was given to us by God before the fall. Before Adam and Eve ate from the forbidden, you know, the forbidden fruit, God told them to work. God sees work as good. He designed work, not stealing, to be the means by which we get what we need. Because we were designed to work, there is an intrinsic blessing and a satisfaction that comes from a job well done. I mean, think about the first feeling you had after earning your first paycheck or the feeling of satisfaction you get after painting a room or finishing a big project. It's so fulfilling, it's so good for the soul. And that was intrinsically put in there by God. The wisdom book of Ecclesiastes talks about how we can find delight in our work. And Paul is telling the people in Ephesus that part of their discipleship, part of their putting on God's ways is working. Not just working really, but working hard, working well. We are taught in the New Testament that even slaves were told to work hard. In Colossians, when Paul was talking to the slaves, he said this. He said, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. We are to work hard at our jobs, keeping in mind that God really is our boss. He sees how we work and what we do. Proverbs 18.9 says, one who is slack in his work is brother to one who destroys. You know, for me, working for the church, I clock in and out, you know, all the time from my house, like on my phone, I can just clock in and out. And it would be possible for me to clock in and then go do other things in my house, switch out the laundry, go make lunch for the kids without logging out. And I can tell you that Vicki <laughs> will see the times where I'm working and then I gotta go switch the laundry. So I take a five minute break and I log out and I log back in. But you know, it's possible that I just could go about my day and, and, and track it as if I'm working. But the thing about me working for a church is that when I steal from the church, when I don't work, when I say I'm working, I'm stealing people's tithe money. I mean, I'm really stealing from God. So it's a sobering thought and one that I take very seriously. But Psalm 24, one says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. You know what? You're in the same boat as me. 
that time and those resources that you choose to waste or use at work, that brain, your physical strength, your cognitive ability is all God's to begin with. And you are accountable for how you manage those things. God values what he has given you. And that includes your material possessions, your opportunities in life, and your natural abilities. And he has entrusted you to use them for good. That's why Paul says we must work doing something useful. Work is not a curse. Even working hard is not a curse. Boredom, frustration, and futility in work are part of the curse. But work itself is a good gift from God. All through scripture, we see an undercurrent that work is valued by God. The book of Proverbs has lots of verses pointing to the, to the value of work. Even in the Old Testament, the Israelites had a welfare system of sorts where they were, they, the, the land owners were told that when they were harvesting the fields, that they were to leave some of the grain in the fields. And then the poor were then allowed to come in and harvest what was left. But the interesting thing is the poor still had to work in order to get food. Now, this wasn't punishment. This was a way to provide both food and purpose for the poor. In the New Testament, Paul gave the early church instructions on who to give church funds to, and work was actually one of the qualifications. In 2 Corinthians, let me find it here, he tells the church how specifically to look at this in one way. He says, for even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle. They are not busy, they are busy bodies. Such people are commanded, we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. Now that's interesting, but also in 1 Timothy, Paul specifically talks about widows. Now you think widows, they're really struggling. You know, they're, they're really in a hard place. And still they had to be people who were willing to work. Let me read to you what it says about the widows. It says, no widow may be put on the list of widows unless she is over 60, has been faithful to her husband, and is well known for her good deeds, such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the saints, helping those in trouble, and devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. The, the newer version of the new NIV says good works. Again, this was not punishment because work is not a curse. Work is good for us. It keeps us from being idle and falling into temptation because we all know when humans have too much time on their hands, their hands often find trouble. More importantly, work gives us an opportunity be to become like our heavenly father, who honestly was the first original worker. He's creative and, and, and he is the one who brings order out of disorder. So in Ephesians 4, when Paul is saying to steal no more and to work, not only is he showing us the way to honor Christ with our lives, but he's showing us the way to go from shame and guilt to joy and satisfaction. Now, it's worth taking some time to evaluate your work. Not only how you're working, but asking, is it honest living? Am I being dishonest in the way I work or um, am I doing something good? Now, you may not think that what you're doing is extremely meaningful, but as long as it's honest work, God can use the simplest task and the simplest job and make it useful and make it good. 
Because when we have integrity and honesty in how we work, it's a witness to the people around us and then by extension, even further out. Which brings me to my last point that we can kind of take away from this section of Ephesians 4. We are to share with others. Let me read the section from Ephesians again, because what I want you to to see is that we are progressing from an inferior type of living to a superior type of living. Okay, let me go back. It says, anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. The idea is that we go from stealing to simply not stealing, to working, to not simply just working, but working hard in order to give to others. John Piper says it like this. He says, the goal and purpose that God has for his people is not reached when they simply quit stealing. And the goal and purpose that God has for his people is not reached when they labor hard with their hands even doing good in order to possess the money they earn. But he says finally that the goal of God for his people in all their gainful employment is reached when they work in order to have so that they can give to those in need. As believers, we don't simply work to have, but we work so that we have something to give. God wants us to help others. It does not take long to see in scripture that God has a heart for the poor and the widow and the orphan and the oppressed, anyone who can't help themselves. And he desires that his body be the people who help those in need. He desires not just for those in need, but also for those who have plenty. I say this all the time, God is efficient and he accomplishes several things here when he tells us to give. Most obviously by wisely giving, we are helping those in need. We we serve those who are hurting, we alleviate some of their earthly, earthly pain. So obviously those in need benefit. But when we give, we also benefit. We keep our own greed at bay. And when we learn to trust God more, we can give more. It becomes this wonderful, kind of ongoing process in us. It's a refining thing that happens for us. And then on top of that, as believers, we get to be a part of the mission that God has for his church. We get to be his hands and feet. Now, let me be very clear. Owning something and having stuff is inherently not bad. And I wanna be really clear about that. If you think about the examples that I gave earlier from scripture, God willingly and happily with pleasure provided stuff to both Adam and Eve and to the Israelites, and he did it in abundance. Having and owning is not the problem. In fact, inferred in the commandment, do not steal, is the fact that we're allowed to own things. The eighth commandment doesn't make sense without the right to private property. If you didn't have the right to own anything, nothing could be stolen from you. And if you didn't have the right to own it, no one would be guilty of taking it without permission. God allows us to own things, to have private property, to gain wealth. In fact, it's one of the ways that he blesses people. There's a lot of talk today about universal basic income, wealth redistribution, and socialism. And some view these ideas as Christian ideas and biblical. 
And on the surface, I think that this can seem very logical. God does desire that the needy are, are helped. And the early church lived together, sharing what was uh, needed by each other. They, in Acts 2, you can read all about this. But I would say that when you consider the whole of Scripture, these concepts are actually not biblical. Now, before you get upset with me, if you lean more that way politically, please give me grace for a minute and just hear me out and consider these thoughts, okay? While the Bible does not necessarily specify any one economic system as being better than another, and definitely there are Christians around the world who follow Christ in the midst of socialist countries, what we have to recognize and understand is that the Bible speaks repeatedly to the value of work. The expectation is that we work to acquire what we need. Scripture encourages the earning, saving, and stewardship of private property, and at times shows God using material possessions to bless people. At the same time, the Bible shows over and over again that God desires for us, his believers, to give to those in need. Not because we have to, but because we want to. The concepts of socialism and wealth redistribution by governmental power have some inherent problems. First, they stem from an idea that society's problems are basically some, because someone is lacking something. The idea being that if everyone had an equal amount, all of societal problems would go away. As Christians, we learn from scripture that societal problems come from sin. We know as believers that the root of pain and brokenness that we see in the world is because of sin. It's not because of lack of material possessions. We logically see this in the fact that even if we know someone who's rich and they have everything that they want, they can still be broken, dysfunctional, and have problems stemming from their sin, not necessarily from their lack of anything. And some of the poorest people in the world are functioning well, loving others well, and living healthy moral lives. Secondly, when we see these concepts lived out, people end up looking to the government to be the source of their provision rather than looking to God. Instead of looking to a church for help, a place that can help them both physically and spiritually, they look to an impersonal entity that only can help with their basic needs. This system eliminates the opportunity of the church to point people to Jesus while meeting their needs. When the government becomes the source, the need is gone and those opportunities are gone as well. And then lastly, by letting the government be in charge of distribution, resources are taken, not given. And let's be honest, forcibly taking something is stealing. Socialism takes the compassionate ideas of Christianity, but wants it done forcibly instead of voluntarily. Now remember, God has a bigger purpose in us giving. God does something in us and in our faith as we give freely and generously. God wants us to feel compelled to give, not forced to give. You know, just like God doesn't force us to love him because forced love is not real love, God doesn't force us to give because a forced gift is not a real gift. In 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, you can read them later, but Paul strongly encourages this idea of giving to those in need. But he specifically says in verse 8 of chapter 8, I'm not commanding you. He goes on to say that he wants them to want to give. And then in 2 Corinthians 9, 
Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give and do so cheerfully. Remember, a forced gift is not a gift and a forced gift does not have the same effect as a gift given freely and cheerfully. When we give because of our love and obedience to Christ, God gets the glory. We get the pleasure of being part of his mission and we benefit spiritually from that refinement that comes from self-sacrifice. We get to resist our own instinctive desire to be greedy and we get to put off our greed and put on generosity. When we ask the government to do the job for us, we forfeit the opportunity that giving brings. We forfeit the relationships that we can form. We forfeit the opportunity to share the love of Jesus and the truth of the gospel. We forfeit the refinement uh, that comes from giving and those relationships that are developed and, and, and kind of create that iron sharpens iron situation where we get to refine each other as we serve and as we give. And we forfeit the chance to see God at work. Instead of creating like this, this, these relationships with mutual trust and care and gratefulness between the giver and the receiver, socialism actually cultivates greed because it causes people to want to hold on to things. It causes resentment because they're angry that things are being taken from them. And it causes unrealistic expectation in the people that just receive. The result is actually more division instead of unity. God wants us to, he wants us to desire to share. He wants us to want to do it out of our love and appreciation for what God has given us. This type of biblical sharing and giving didn't end with the early church. You know, people often refer to just the, the way the early church live, lived. But if you look at church history, and if you don't know much about church history, I would encourage you spend time reading about, um, you, can, you can read missionary biographies or biographies of other Christians who've made a difference by helping those in need, but there are tons of examples. I mean, think about the opportunities to shine the light of Jesus that would have been lost if Mother Teresa just asked the government to help the lepers and the poor, or Jackie Pullinger, who spent decades among the drug addicts in China, or Amy Carmichael, who saved young girls from temple prostitution in India, or William Wilberforce and all the Christian abolitionists who led the worldwide movement to abolish slavery. You know, and I could talk about the orphanages, the hospitals, the rehab centers, the schools, all of those started by Christians throughout history to meet the needs of the least. The whole time sharing the gospel with those who, who they served. What if they had just left it up to the government to fix those problems? Instead, they gave to the poor and they served to the poor. And in the process, they led people to Jesus. But just like the Israelites wanted to follow a king instead of just simply following God, we want to rely on man-made systems instead of, of God to make the difference. I mean, after all, if the system does it, we aren't accountable for it, and we don't have to get messy in those relationships and in the process. But God wants his church to be part of the process, part of what he's doing in the world. And honestly, he's the only one who can save, and he's the only one who can get to the root of all the issues that come with sin in our society. But we have got to step up to the plate and do the work of the kingdom. You know, I thought long and hard 
about sharing these points with you. I mean, I have to be honest, the last thing I wanna do is cause more division in a time when we already feel divided about so many things. But we can't shy away from topics just because they're hard. If we're to keep the Bible as a plumb line and a measuring stick, we have to honestly look at how it applies to the issues of our day. So what do we do after studying the Eighth Commandment? What are our next steps? Well, we stop stealing if we have been. We start working and not just working, but working honestly and working hard and we share. You know, if you're not tithing, I would say that's a great place to start. I mean, I could do a, an entire sermon about how tithing is important and how the Bible actually says that if you aren't tithing, you're stealing from God. So start that if you're not. And after tithing, if, if, if those of you um, have that down, then I would say start thinking of people or asking God to show you people who need help or maybe look for an organization that's doing good work in the things that, that already bring passion to your heart, that are already things that you have a burden for. You know, when one of my children, who will remain nameless, was in preschool, she stole some marbles from the classroom. Apparently there was like this little nook by where she napped, where there were these marbles. And when I discovered what happened, I told her she had to return them. Well, she didn't want to return them. She didn't want to tell her teachers. I mean, she was absolutely mortified at the thought. I think, honestly, she didn't want the teachers to think less of her. She didn't want to, you know, go through the whole process. It was embarrassing. But also, I think she just really wanted the marbles and didn't feel horrible about it. But the next morning, I walked up with her to the school door, and she, you know, stood there sobbing, telling her teachers what she had done. And then she handed the marbles back. Her teachers were awesome. They were kind, they were understanding and forgiving. They, they embraced her, they, they um, listened to her as she expressed her shame and embarrassment. And, and what was so sweet is that they, they got it. Like they understood and they, they knew that this was just a blip on the screen in my daughter's story. But they showed her compassion because they know, they knew how hard it, it, it is to do something difficult, even though it's right. God is so much more than them. The Bible says that God is understanding, that he is patient, that he's loving, long-suffering, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. If you hear nothing else today, I want you to hear that there is a God who loves you and who understands you, and who has compassion for you, and who will forgive you for whatever you have done, no matter what commandment it is that you struggle with, bring it to him. Ask him to help you. Ask him to help you put off your old self and put on the new. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the truth found in this commandment, and I thank you for what it reveals in us. And Lord, I pray that as we ponder these things and as we just digest all of this message, Lord God, I pray that you would do a work in us, that you would help us to put off the things in our lives that are not of you. And Lord, that you would help us to actively participate in putting on the godly ways you desire. Lord, have your way in our lives. 
be glorified and help us to do the hard things. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for joining us here at The Vineyard. It's our greatest desire to see you find and follow God, and we hope that this podcast has helped you do just that. For more video messages and content, make sure to visit our website, vineyardwheeling.com, or download our app. Again, thanks for joining us this week. We'll see you next time.